Um, we're excited to have our friend Robert Royal here with us this afternoon. Um, he's the founder and president of the Faith and Reason Institute here in Washington, D.C., as well as editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing. Uh, he's written numerous books, um, including 1942 and all that political manipulations of history, Reinventing the American People, Unity and Diversity Today, The Catholic Martyrs of the 20th Century, A Comprehensive Global History, and The Pope's Army, among many others. Um, Dr. Royal ho holds a BA and MA from Brown University and a PhD in Comparative Literature from the Catholic University of America. He has taught at Brown University, Rhode Island College, and the Catholic University of America. He received a fellowship to study in Italy from the Renaissance Society of America and is also a Fulbright Scholar. And with that, please join me in giving a proper welcome to Dr. Robert Royal. Well, thanks very much, Rosemary. It's always a great pleasure to come here to the CIC, which has got to be sort of ground zero for Catholicism here in downtown uh, Washington. And thank you both for putting together this book club, which I think is a, a wonderful idea. It's also a wonderful idea because it gave me a chance to reread my book, which <laughs> I hadn't looked at in quite a while. Um, the, this book came out in 2006, which sadly for me was the year my father died. And so during that year, I was my parents lived up in Connecticut. I was going back and forth, and I, I kind of lost the grip on the book and lost the grip on the PR. And I really think that I have a lot of friends who um, really love this book. And I said, yeah, that's great. And, but I didn't know exactly why. And as I started to reread it the last few days to kind of refresh my memory uh, so that I could speak to you today, I was kind of impressed. I said to myself, wow, I, you know, I really put a lot of heart into that. And I, I touched on a lot of things that um, I can't entirely touch on in the short time we have together. I mean, as it is, I've tried to give you what a, a kind of a approach to the religious history of the West in 300 pages in the book. So for me to condense all that down into the 30 or 40 minutes we have right now is going to have to be very spotty. But I'm going to try to hit a couple of high points and to try to give you just a general notion of what I think is important about this book that maybe isn't in other books and how it can have um, a kind of a help for us at a time that obviously is very, very troubled, but not as troubled as some other times in Christian history. Just I mean, Let's just say that uh, outright. I was reading this morning and, and telling my wife about it that, um, for example, everybody talks about Martin Luther as the great attempt to reform the Catholic Church in, in the 15th century. But as I discovered when I was writing this book, in the 15th century, way before Luther, there were Catholics who were very concerned about reforming the Church, and even going back to the Middle Ages with Francis and with uh, St. Dominic. And one theological writer used to say that when you gave a sermon, people would be kind of falling asleep, but, but the minute you started to talk about corruption in the clergy, Everybody perked up right away, and they were really very much energized by it. So this is something that, that I think we have to get perspective on a lot of the things that agitate us. And that's one of the things that having a very careful look at what happened at different points in history helps us at this moment to be a little bit more stable. Another thing that happened just shortly after that, that remark that I just mentioned is Rome was actually invaded and many th churches desecrated and nuns raped and whatnot in 1527 by the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. So, I mean, it's a complicated story to try to retell, but as, as we now in our time when we see so many threats to us in our political realm and socially and culturally, at the very least, we don't have an empire invading us and desecrating our churches. And we want to have a certain perspective and a certain caution about overreading I think, certain circumstances. I was, um, like everybody else, I've been, been uh, agitated over this Covington Catholic incident right here in the mall the other day. But it reminded me that uh, two weeks ago, I was on EWTN. I do a lot of TV as well as writing books and articles these days. I was on EWTN with someone I had never been on a panel with before, Ed Condon from the Catholic News Agency. He was a very good guy, very good writer, and a very good reporter. And he and I kind of, kind of slightly disagreed about 
you know, what is the current approach that would be most fruitful? He thinks that the Holy Father is right to emphasize personal responsibility. I was talking about institutional and structural reform. And a number of people wrote to me and said, he was getting in your face, almost like that Indian, you know, drumming, right? But he wasn't really. He was sitting next to me, and he wasn't used to being in a panel. But So he would turn toward me, and the camera would pick that up, and it looked like it was very confrontational when, in fact, we were kind of having a conversation between two Catholics who, you know, were trying to figure out, you know, what do we do in these circumstances. So the first thing I would just say is that it's not good to be hysterical. And that one of the ways that we, um, one of the important ways that we can help ourselves not to be hysterical, particularly at a moment like this, which is very unstable, uncertain, both in the world and in the church, is to give ourselves some perspective. Now, look, for most Catholics, for most Christians in general, the way that they lead their lives best is by regularly reading the scriptures, praying daily. I always encourage people, even if it's just a quick prayer when you wake up in the morning because you're busy and you, this is what I do myself. Obviously, we would like to do more, do the Liturgy of the Hours, the Rosary every day, a Mass if, if possible. But even that one prayer early in the morning can make a big difference. So that, that's the way most of us operate, spiritual reading, maybe a spiritual director. But, but, if we really want to understand our faith more deeply and be equipped in a different way than most people are right now, because, frankly, we can yell louder than the, the guys on the other side, and they can try to yell, yell back at us. This happens even at the Catholic thing. I wrote a column yesterday about the Covington situation in which I said, you know, we shouldn't be, as Christians, we shouldn't be talking about other people the way they talk about us, because it's quite horrifying, actually. And, of course, 50 comments went back and forth with people insulting one another about their different understandings of what I had said <laughs> in the column. This is a terrible circumstance to be in, and we need to break that cycle. And one of the ways, I think, to break that, we don't, you know, we don't back off from the fights that we, mu we must fight because we are under attack in this society. But one of the ways we do that is to become more familiar with our own tradition. Now, what I tried to do in this book, in that regard, is not maybe exactly what you think a book like this tries to do. Has anybody, has anybody read the book, actually, here? Parts of it? Do you know what the title means, by the way? There was a book that came out in 1950 called The God That Failed. And the God That Failed in, in, the, in 1950 was communism for, for five authors from different countries. Um, Arthur Kessler, uh, Ignazio Siloni from Italy, Stephen Spender from England, and, and a couple of others. And they had been communists in the 1930s, and by the 1950s they realized that that type of totalitarian politics was, was a religion that they had joined and that it was false and it had failed. And they, this is long before 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I, as I was talking with the publishers about how to do this book, it struck me that one of the things that we, we neglect in the West is that God has not failed in spite of the fact that whole civilizations have collapsed around the church. Whole cultures have shifted. Areas that were once Christian, like North Africa, have become Muslim, but the church has managed to survive and be still to become the largest religious body on earth. So there's a certain message to begin with, I think, in that. And we have to, be, we have to depart from the point of, of understanding that God does not fail. He never fails, even if in, in certain circumstances we may feel um, quite depressed, perhaps e even frantic, that, w that everything underneath us seems to be collapsing. Now, the way I approach that in this book may sound a little bit funny, because one of the things I set out to emphasize, and I think any chapter that you read that you'll, you'll see this, is that the, ma the, the main point of the survival is not primarily a question of theology or philosophy or moral uh, reflection. It's a question of a story. And I don't mean a fairy story with all due respect to uh, Tolkien. I mean a story that is actually a true story of God creating the world, being a loving God who created the world out of love, which is not necessarily what gods in most religions uh, will say, 
um, the the gods of ancient uh, Greek and Latin mythology, for example, are capricious, they're adulterous. They're not a loving God. They're not a transcendent God the way that we conceive of it as, as Jews and Christians and, and in a different way Muslims conceive of it. So he creates the world, and he has a story about what he wants our life in this world to be that we read from Adam and Eve and then eventually into the selection of the Jews as the chosen people. Now to a lot of people this is called the scandal of particularism. But f for me, I think that what this tells us is that our, our lives, the way that God has asked us to live our lives, which then involves us in the, the more intellectual debates, the philosophy and the theology that I was talking about earlier, that our actual living lives as, as beings in time, moving through history, makes a difference over and above the, tr the abstract truths that, that we understand through, through theology. Now, as I say, some people consider this uh, the scandal of particularism. What I would say is that it shows that God believes that individual persons and individual currents in our, our lives are the way that the greatest truth is conveyed. So the whole history of the Jews, the 2,000 years before Christ appears on earth, is important to us because it points to a way that God himself has chosen to reveal himself to us through that, that continuation through time with the Jewish people. And then Jesus himself appearing at a certain point in history, something that the philosophers and theologians thought was impossible, that God himself would come into the world, that the eternal could become temporal. And not just to, to come and talk about philosophical and theological truths, although obviously those are in the New Testament as well, but he comes to carry out a work. And the work, I, I would say, is twofold. On the one hand, he dies on the cross terribly to redeem us from our sins and then rises from the dead, right? Uh, this already itself tells us something, that our fallen state cannot be remedied simply by some sort of rational analysis of the situation and our own efforts to save ourselves. God himself has to come into the world and endure horrible torments to actually be killed by his own people, the Jewish people and, and the Romans then, the, the great power at the time. He has to undergo all that because there's something horribly wrong with the world in which we find ourselves. If we assume that, that the world is actually going to be a, a kind of a nice suburban American um, existence, we're deluding ourselves. And when troubled times come back as they, they are right now, which may even lead to persecution and marginalization, of Christians, we shouldn't be surprised. We should know about that. Now, I think more pointedly, my wife handed me a book yesterday, and um, it's about, uh, the, the end of the book is about certain Protestant preachers here in the United States who came to appreciate, they still remain Protestant, but they came to appreciate the Catholic Church. And one of them, it struck me how amazing this is. He said, I graduated from a Methodist seminary. And I never heard, with an advanced degree in Christian studies, I never once heard that there was a church in existence for the 1,500 years before the Reformation. So in other words, he's saying that, you know, there's the Bible, and then nothing, and then, <laughs> then there's the Reformation, or there's, it's worse than nothing, it's, it's the Antichrist, right? But again, this points us back to the fact that what is the church? The church, like the Jewish people, is God's mystical body, to use an abstract expression, but it's his people existing now through time. So again, God is a, is, is a God of particularities as well as of universalism. So he, 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 he brought his revelation to us through the, through the Hebrew uh, uh, prophets and the, and the Hebrew people. And then when his own son is incarnate on earth and suffers and dies and is resurrected, he founds the church, which continues God's people through time in a different way. Now, I want to say again, other cultures, I mean, there's lots to be learned from other cultures, and I've studied a lot of them in this book, and I, I talk about them and in other books that, that I've written. But we want to recognize that in spite of the riches that can exist in other cultures, our biblical understanding of creation and Christian life and, and, and biblical life 
passes through this idea of history as conveying certain things to us over and above abstraction. Now, the two can flow together. I, I think one of the better chapters in this book is the chapter on ancient Greece because a lot of people used to, in the days when secularists were rationalists and were opposed to Christianity, we're way beyond this, by the way, now. We're, we're in the post-truth world, the post-reason world, the post-world post world is, is, is the way it looks at, at times. But there was a certain point in history, mostly in the 19th century, when people opposed the classical, the, pa the great pagan, joyful philosophers and d democrats and whatnot, to Christianity, right? That Christianity was superstitious and dark and brought us the dark ages and whatnot. This is such utter nonsense. There's no scholar of any sanity who believes this any longer. And one of the stories I tell in the book that I, I like to repeat every time that I, I, I talk about this subject is when um, Socrates is going to be put to death, Right? And in the ancient world, philosophers were very few. They, they still are very few because very few people can do that kind of abstract reasoning, obviously. But people in the ancient world thought only the very most, the most accomplished philosophers could ever face death the way Socrates did, without fear, knowing that he would pass on to the gods, which, by the way, shows us that the pagans were not atheists either, uh, contrary to modern notions. And there's a funny episode in uh, Plato's Phaedo, which is the, the account of Socrates has already been condemned and he's facing death and he gives all these arguments for why the soul is immortal. You know, he, he, there, uh, there are several of them, they don't all kind of fit together and s his followers are still saying, yeah, but Socrates, you're going to die. But one of them says, well, look, these are probably the best arguments we can make ourselves the best rational arguments we can make for why the soul survives and why we will go to the gods when we die. And we have to hold on to these arguments as the best arguments we have in the same way that we would hold on to a raft if we were floating down a river unless some god provides us with a revelation. This is 400 years before Jesus Christ. And the word that is used for revelation, by the way, in the original Greek is logos. Now, I'm sure all of you are familiar with the, the idea of logos. In the Gospel of John, the very first uh, verse of the Gospel of John was, in the beginning was hologos, which is translated there as the word, capital W, word. But it also means reason. It also means a kind of uh, uh, a, 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 a story that explains something, almost, almost like a, a myth, but a true myth, right? So there was this connection. There was this seeking in ancient Greece for something that they knew they didn't have, but they knew they needed. And so it's no surprise that when Christ enters in, into the world, first there's resistance, right? There's a resistance, and, and who wouldn't resist a story that somebody was crucified, died, and rose from the dead? It's, it seems impossible. But at the same time, it had a power. It had an explanatory power that attracted people and not simply, again, I say at an abstract level, it changed their lives. It, it was an enormous change in their lives. You know, we often hear in the church, it's, it's in, in the New Testament, that Christ came in the fullness of time. Now I'm going to move on to Rome. If you look at ancient Rome, at the time that Christ was born under Tiberius, this is sort of like, the, by human standards, the most unpropitious mo moment for him to come. Tiberius isn't the worst of the Roman emperors, but he's already starting to get there, and then we start to have Caligula and, and uh, others that, for that whole century in which Christ is born, are pretty awful um, rulers until you get to the second century when you get sort of the, the, uh, the emperor philosophers like Marcus Aurelius and others who, who are good. So in what sense was it the fullness of time that Christ came at that moment? I think it has to be. In, the, in my book, I talk about the preparation of how the Logos was already being absorbed into Judaism and how it was beginning to change the way people thought about their relationships with, with one another. Now, there's a lot of interesting work that's been done at how did the, the church spread throughout the Roman Empire, particularly in the second and third centuries when it was being repressed and people were being tortured and we, we know of the martyrdoms in the Colosseum and various waves of persecutions and, and murders. The way I think that, that best ex explains how Christianity spread, and I do a lot of work on the intellectual side of it, but I think the, the, the larger appeal was to two things. 
And there are two figures that I cite in the book about this. Some of you probably know the old um, uh, Greek physician Galen, G-A-L-E-N, right? Second century, probably the most famous physician in, in uh, the second century in the ancient world. He sees the Christians going calmly to their deaths in the Colosseum and elsewhere, and he says, well, they're fanatics, but he says, it's amazing that this Christ figure has enabled people to do what you recall only the rarest philosophers were able to do, which was to face death with in, in calmness and with an assurance of a future life. So here's a man of science, a man of science in the ancient world who's immensely impressed with the way Christianity is lived and is beginning to, to bring together many elements in the ancient classical world. The other thing, I think, and, and we want to remember this ourselves, is because we're going to have to re-evangelize a pagan world that in some ways is even tougher to re-evangelize than, than the classical world, because the classical world was at least open to truths. I don't, I'm not so sure that our world is. <coughs> the other thing that happened, I think you can see most clearly if you look at the emperor uh, Julian the Apostate. Julian was a, a Catholic who actually became a pagan because his family were murdered by a different faction uh, in the elite of the ancient Roman Empire. And uh, he, he kept on being frustrated in trying to reinstitute paganism. And one of the reasons he said that this was a problem was that the Christians showed so much charity, not only to one another, but even to the, the pagans. So it was a combination of belief that impressed people and a love of other human beings that enabled Christianity to, s to spread in the ancient world. Now, <coughs> I talk, I, I don't want to uh, go on and on because I, I want to give you all a chance to, um, uh, to raise your own I issues and, and ask questions, but I talk about how that then got transmitted in the chaos that follows the fall of Rome. And it's, again, it, there's no serious scholar who thinks that Christianity corrupted Rome the way that Edward Gibbon and others you know, did. Uh, Rome got quite corrupt on its own steam without having Christianity uh, behind it all. But you can see clearly in the record that we've begun to uncover, and by the way, it's, it's only about the last 150 years that people have be begun to dig carefully into the dark age, what we call the dark ages and the middle ages. And now we know a tremendous amount more than we knew say in 1890. In 1890, people didn't even realize that the scholastic philosophers were different, that Bonaventure and, and Thomas were, were quite different from another. They, they, some people kind of vaguely knew this, but there was a, you really had to have a historical recovery of what actually happened during this a age that uh, enabled the, the, the church to, to uh, survive and then to reinvigorate our whole civilization. Now, this book does not do there's a, there's a medieval concept called via remotionis. You, you remove all the things that something is not, and then what it is is supposed to be what's, what's left at that point. This book is not one of those books like how the, the uh, Catholic Church uh, invented Western civilization. Uh, that's that Thomas Woods book, which is very good, and I think very clever. But I also would want to say that there's lots else that, that happens as well. I mean, there were people were kissing babies and trying to do justice and whatnot before the, you know, the, before the church came, came into it. But what you see there in that, that time that we think of as so troubled and when our civilization was so very weak is that the church and the faith could survive and inspire something that by human judgments couldn't possibly have survived those, those periods of chaos and then come out with the brilliance of the medieval age. Okay? So brilliant is that period in our history that as we know, th there's a kind of a romantic attachment in the West to medievalism. People d decry medievalism, but then they go and they read Tolkien. Right? <laughs> People in the 19th century in England thought that they were rational and romantic and whatnot. And when Parliament burned down in 18, in, uh, before 1830 and they rebuilt it, how did they rebuild it? They rebuilt it as a Gothic, a medieval Gothic <laughs> building because it just has associations. It has a wealth. It brings together so many different elements at that kind of formative stage when things are fresh and they're exciting and you even though th they don't have great technologies, there's something about them, they're vibrant and, and they, they're attracted to us. And that's why we love Middle Earth, because Middle Earth is, is kind of modeled on that. Well, um, look, I could go on about this, but uh, I, I'm going to skip over some of the, these other um, periods that are in the book 
it, it also, by the way, is not a book about the history of Western civilization. If you read carefully and read slowly, you may want to also read some of the sources I used and read, you know, use, read some of your own sources on all these different periods. But there's, there's a, a very interesting way that the church and, and Christian truth keeps adapting itself and surviving and inspiring and doing different things at every different moment in history. The biggest challenge I think that we have to uh, recognize that we face um, right now is that this kind of alternative religion of politics has emerged. And you see this already at the time of the French Revolution. Look, politics is, is, it was a subject that interested the ancients, it interested St. Augustine, it interested, it interested the medievals, the Renaissance period, the, the reformers, the counter-reformers, they're all interested in this. But it's only sort of in our own modernity, what the last 200 and 250 years, that politics has almost tried to become an alternative to um, the meaning of life that most people find in religion, family, nation. And you see this very clearly, of course, at the time of the French Revolution. I have a chapter that on, the, on the revolutionary period that begins with the story of the, um, uh, the Carmelites, the 14 Carmelites in France who um, were guillotined. Now, Carmelites, as I'm sure everybody here knows, they're, they're a contemplative order. They're, they're, they're in their convents harming no one with no political engagement to any, anyone. But it happens again and again and again that totalitarian political movements go for the contemplatives first. Or, or soon, anyway. They, they go early because the contemplatives are really the most independent people on earth, right? They live poorly. They don't, they're not looking for power. They're not looking for wealth. They want to pray to God and for us and for themselves. And this is an alternative source of value and, and uh, a way to look at the world that threatens all political totalitarianisms, whether they call themselves democracies or, or tyrannies or communism or Nazism, fascism, whatever they are. In the case of the Carmelites, there actually is a, there's a very good text that was written by the French novelist Georges Bernanon that was set to music by Francois Poulenc. Uh, it's, a, it's an opera. It's a kind of an, uh, almost an oratorio, but it's usually called an opera, called Dialogue of the Carmelites. So you can actually listen to that and get an idea of the, the story. But it, happen, it, 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 it shows one thing that began to happen again and again as religion started to fade in some people's minds from the public sphere. And they tried to use, most of the time, politics, but sometimes it's science. Um, sometimes it's culture. It's, it, it's alternatives to the true God get set up as a false god, as the, uh, <laughs> as the god that failed people said in 1950. So we see that happening you know, in modern times. And one of the, I think one of the things that we can take some um, inspiration from is that the alternatives themselves haven't worn all that well. A lot of people at the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution looked back at the bloodiness of it and said that was wrong. Yes. People wanted a, a, a democracy, more popular input into um, their societies. But what happened when you start guillotining 14 poor nuns? This is madness. And it hasn't gone away. The little sisters of the poor are still, right? I mean, they're being gone after by uh, a political regime that we think ought to be more responsive and, and more uh, indulgent of this, these civil society roles in our, our country. <coughs> so Marxism... Uh, Marxism, which comes out of all of that, failed in 1989, and it had to because it, it was a monstrous regime. Fascism, which was the, the use of the people as an alternative to God, failed. Nazism, which was a, a, racial, a racially motivated uh, regime, failed because it tried to substitute the Volk for God. And not only there. I think Freudianism is largely, re, 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 uh, is, is largely retreated. If you talk to most psychologists now, they say, yeah, there are some insights there, but it was very time-bound. You know, there was a lot of repressive daddy problems in Vienna in, in, in uh, Freud's day. If we look at our time, if you think that our time is overrun by oppressive fathers and males, well, 
God love you, try to make that argument. I think the, the argument could be made that it's the absence of any order or, or family or authority that is, is our, our problem. I think the same could be said. The, the, um, the same uncertainties now surround Darwinism, at least the way it was initially presented, or Nietzscheanism. I have a whole chapter about that. These are other gods that people have tried to propose that I believe have already failed. And now we're trying an experiment that I think is a very dangerous one, not only here in the United States, but everywhere that modern democratic systems have come to power. And it's this. Um, even in Europe, after World, World War II, when they tried to rebuild their societies that had been destroyed by that horrible war, there was a, a sense that the society had to be built on something. Now, in America, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that we've been endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we have a firm foundation. In fact, we have the firmest foundation for our liberties. And whenever I'm speaking in Europe, I, I try to emphasize this and say, look, you guys think that freedom comes from the absence of religion. We think that it can only exist because there's religion. And as our founders understood, the reason for this is why do we respect other human beings? Why do we think that each individual human being has infinite worth, has dignity, is deserving of our respect, even criminals, even people who have been put in jail, we feel a certain need to respect in a way, right, even as we restrain them? Well, it's because our whole biblical story that I started out explaining tells us that every single person now existent on the face of the earth was created by the creator God in his image and likeness. Again, not every religious system says that, right? It's also true that um, I, I believe that it's very hard to establish the basis of rights and of liberties on any other basis. If you, if you think about this, say you are a pure secu secularist today in America. Why do you respect somebody else's rights? Now, you could make a utilitarian argument. You could say, well, look, we'll set up this system. This was not, by the way, the system that our American founders set up. But you could set up a system and say, look, you leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. Live and let live. We'll have these spaces in society, and people will be able to do whatever they want. Now, in a way, that's partly what our system is. Civil society, different religious groups, pluralism, different philosophical ideas, different political ideas, different cultures, different nationalities, all can fit within the American system. If, however, if we begin with the notion that all human beings have an infinite worth because we're all rooted in, in something that is sacred, something that is divine. And so I think we're, we're what we're trying to live out right now, and you can see some of these arguments laid out in much greater detail than I can offer right now, but I think what we're trying to live through right now here in the United States is we're looking for the, the political order to be absolute justice, which in, in inevitably ends up in absolute tyranny. We are a fallen race. The best regimes that we can set up are those that are moderate and prudent and don't seek to remedy every evil. Even St. Thomas Aquinas you know, says in some famous passages that, look, if you try to abolish prostitution, this is the Middle Ages, obviously, you'd have to get involved in so many different things that it would actually would lead to greater difficulty in the society than, than kind of restricting it, speaking against it, et cetera. There are prudent judgments like this that, that we make. I think what we see th these days in, in this move towards social justice is, has become radical. There's nothing wrong with social justice as such. But a radical approach to social justice inevitably is going to encroach on everyone, absolutely everyone, because... Who's going to make the decisions about what is permissible and what's not permissible? It's not going to be God, right? It's not even going to be the philosopher kings like Marcus Aurelius or St. Augustine or somebody else. It's going to be elected politicians. And we all live in Washington, and we know that that – look, I don't want to be cynical about – not all politicians are like this, but they all somewhat have to play to popular passions. From ancient Greece to modern times, people have always worried about democracy for that very reason. And that's why our founders were very cautious that they set up a republic, not a pure democracy, because they could see historically, looking back at ancient Greece, Rome, 
uh, the Middle Ages, uh, Athens, Florence, Venice, Genoa, the, these, these regimes inevitably kind of gave in to popular passions that destroyed them. So we have to be cautious here. And we, and we are the, now the bearers of an American tradition as well as a Catholic tradition. And we are the bearers of a tradition that is a good tradition, not only for America, but for all peoples, that there be moderate understandings of politics, that there be large spaces left for human liberty and, and uh, uh, the pluralism of religions and the pluralism of, 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 of uh, thought that is what a democracy can be at its best. But we're always with the proviso that we always respect one another because we have to respect one another. I've come, I mean, just to get personal about this for a second, I've come this close to s suppressing all comments at the Catholic thing because I see our Catholics being as nasty toward one another. And these are all people who kind of really believe, I mean, really want to see the church be the church in, in the modern world. But they treat one another as if they were pagans who hated one another. So anyway, there's, a lots, uh, there's lots to be mind from our tradition. But I want to leave you with this thought again. We, are, we stand in this living historical stream that is the richest cultural, theological, philosophical, and social tradition in the world. There's nothing like it. There's no tradition as rich that's 2,000 years old as ours is. And if you want to include the Jew Jewish tradition, which I think we ought to, it's really a 4,000-year tradition. It ha has its points where it contradicts the American society that we live in, but at its best, and when American society is at its best, these are two entities that can fruitfully cross-fertilize one another. And it may be our role in the future, if we're not in the catacombs, it may be our role in the next decades to be that voice, that voice that is not hysterical, that sees that there are ways that we can respect one another, that draws deeply from our tradition so that we're not just the creatures of Twitter and Facebook and maybe things even worse. I don't know anything much beyond that in, in on the internet. But this is a noble tradition and it's one that we ought to know about. And we should we, we want to know about it in our personal lives, in the in the way that we train ourselves daily. But we want to know about it because it's God's history and God decided to convey to us his revelation through this wonderful history which is Catholicism, the God that did not fail. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Robert. Uh, we're now going to open the floor to some questions. I just ask that if you do have a question, uh, let me hand you the mic. Uh, we do have people watching at home and in their office, and I want to make sure they're able to hear your questions. Thank you. Robert, thank you for this fascinating presentation. I'm Mark Mielski. I think nobody would disagree when you're saying that freedom comes from religion and it is probably clear that any Christian and G.K. Chesterton said that there is true freedom you find within the Catholic Church but I am a little bit unclear what you're meaning what you're saying when you say that uh, radical or absolute justice can uh, fall to absolute tyranny because freedom you know the justice and freedom are very intertwined as the Greeks and our Christian tradition says I think it's, it's indisputable that the revolutionary tradition, starting in, in France, did something that's quite different from the rest of uh, our history in the West. It's really an attempt to, to um, turn politics into God. And that's why the, 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 those writers wrote about the God that, that failed, because they don't allow spaces for error. You know, the enemies of the people um, people who are not sufficiently woke, as we, you know, we now talk about. Uh, a boy in a MAGA hat smirks because, and a, a, a Native American um, activist is beating a drum in his face is somehow a cosmic uh, confrontation. I mean, I looked at all those videos. I don't know if any of you did. And to me, it, it looks like a stupid thing that happened. It seemed to me that there was ample room for some blame to go around the way people were treating each other, but the boys probably least of all. But we're, we, we live in a culture right now that, uh, that assumes that our political order is going to be able to resolve original sin. God himself had to die on a cross to, to redeem us from original sin, and 
even so, the record has not looked all that great the last 2,000 years, right? I mean, there, there still is sin, and, and it, it's the way that grace uh, operating through all sorts of different channels brings us back. It's sort of like the old Hebrew situation where the Hebrew people depart from God's ways and then they come back. And I mean, it's sort of the, the history of the human race. But I, I think wh what the, the best way to lo look at this is if you really think that a political order or a social order is going to bring about absolute justice, it could only do that if the order itself is absolutely true. And I, I think the best thinkers in our tradition have always said the political realm is a realm of prudence. It is not a realm of absolutes. There's a difference when we talk about moral theology, you know, philosophical reflection. Those are absolute things that we're, we're pursuing. And in our own lives, we should really strive for, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, as Jesus said. But political orders, who, in, who as a human being can be that ruler who is going to be absolutely perfect in adjudicating justice? I don't think we can expect that from the human race. I recently read a piece in First Things about this decline in civility in the American uh, dialogue. And uh, he was saying, well, some people say a more Christian society would, would, would alleviate that. He said, but you know, Renaissance, Florence, and Italy, and uh, the Middle Ages, you know, there was a lot of fighting going on. Um, and he thinks that the solution actually is um, the study of human hu human letters, humane letters, uh, humanism of uh, great great literature, great philosophers, great thinkers, Christian or not, and um, rooting yourselves in that, that that might do something to teach us to be more civil. What do you think about that notion? Um, I think it's true, and it's a long project. <laughs> In a way, that, that's exactly what this book does as well, because I'm, I'm always talking about Aristotle and Plato. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, I used to read St. Thomas and Aristotle, because you needed that wall. The world is just too crazy. The older I get, I'm more Augustinian and Platonic and, and humanistic, because I think that um, there are a lot, you know, the world is a complicated place, and so you want to be able to prudently, as I was just talking about, prudently bring together all sorts of different elements in your personal life, in society, your, your immediate family, your neighborhood, et cetera. Um, and I, th I think all that is absolutely great. But you know what? It's a, a hard sell even to get people to read Dead White Men. I mean, I wish we were still having the debate about Dead White Men. The, the, the fact is that argument, which used to be part of a lot of what I wrote back in the 80s and 90s, has now so far fallen by the wayside that we just assert these things as if no one has ever thought about them before. And, and we've never seen the consequences of what going down certain paths has done before. We've got s some cautionary tales. We also have some good things to look for. I mean, there, there are some high points in the world that are, are worth trying to emulate. You know, there's that old, you're probably familiar with that old Orson Welles movie, um, The Third Man, where uh, Orson Welles is playing this terrible guy who has been watering down penicillin and children are dying in, in post-World War II uh, Austria. And he says, ah, you know, he says, yes, he says, you know, order and democracy and all. And he says, during the Renaissance, you had the, these terrible Italian regimes, and uh, they, had, they, they gave us painting and Botticelli and Leonardo and all this. And the Swiss had democracy, and what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> you know. So, I mean, you, you, could, you could mock it that way. But there's, look, there's no getting around the, to, to understand what a human being is as God's creation is going to require us to study humane letters, not just philosophy and theology. Those are helpful. Um, it, we, we need to have a proper theology and philosophy of the human person. But to understand that in its fullness, we also need those concrete things, sometimes even reading literature that, is, that portrays some terrible stuff. I've written a whole book on Dante. And I often like to tell people, uh, that's what I was studying when I was a Fulbright student in Italy, Dante. I like to tell people that two-thirds of the Divine Comedy, which is a, 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 a uh, pilgrimage through the three realms of the other, other world, I Inferno, Purgatory, and then finally par Paradise, two-thirds of the greatest Catholic poem and maybe the greatest poem period ever written are about evil. Right? They're about sinful human beings going all the way down to Satan himself, who's not a human being, but beings. Um, it's about 
the slow process in purgatory of purging the soul of the, the various sins and errors and failures that, that uh, mess us all up in life. Dante says, uh, one of Dante's characters says in the purgatory, oh, you who are being made, who, who were made cr- crooked and are now being made straight. So for two-thirds of this poem, we're dealing with evil and the, and the opposition to evil. And that tells us something about humanity. I mean, if the greatest medieval and maybe the greatest poet, as I said, Christian poet ever, tells us that a lot of what we deal with is going to be either evil or imperfect, that, that that's part of what being a human being at this point in history in a fallen world means. And once we lose sight of that and assume that everybody is, is fine and there are no, there's no sin and um, it, we can't entirely understand why Christ had to be crucified. It must have been some kind of mistake because he was just preaching tolerance and love. We, we've falsified the gospel, and humanism helps us to understand that, I think. Yes? You made a comment about politics serving as effectively as a god, you know, in which people are placing their faith to solve their problems. And I accept the premise. I mean, I think it's a valid description. But there's a whole bunch of ironies underneath it, which is, number one, people have less confidence in their politicians than ever before. Number two, the legislative branch is completely paralyzed and incapable of doing much. Number three, you're seeing consequential social decisions being resolved by the judiciary or by the administrative state. So if politics is a god, it seems to be made out of tinfoil and balsa wood. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a a beautiful way to put it, (laughs) that in fact when we expected politics to do less – we we respected it more, you know. Um, s- someone was telling me about the EU, for example, that um, there, there there's it's often talked about in in foreign policy circles that the EU has very little transparency, but it seeks to to uh, to regularize virtually everything. You know that the individual countries are are uh, less and less able to to uh, operate on their own. And obviously the solution to this is to have a somewhat federated system like our, as our federal system used to be, where different states could do different things. But although they talk about subsidiarity, they, in fact, they don't allow those spaces to exist. And it's sort of the nature of modern politics to keep uh, arrogating more and more to itself and to draw uh, less and less confidence precisely because it can't deliver on the things that it, it, it tries to deliver. I, I've, I've told a lot of the Europeans that my, my main objection to the EU is not this or that. The, my main objection to them, as it is to our American system now, the way it is right now, is that I want to know what the limits are. You know, I want to know, okay, so-and-so is going to tell you that you can only sell bananas in the EU that are of a certain length. Well, that's fine. But what if he says they have to be this color and they have to be, you know, and you could go on and on with, with the, this sort of thing. Wh- wh- where does it stop? It's, it's great to project, you know, we're, oh, we're going to do the, all these wonderful things. But where does it stop? Where, do, where does individual liberty and, and the liberty of families and the liberty of churches, where does all that kick in? And as we see more and more, there's, there's less and less free space as politics thinks it's bringing about greater and greater justice. Yeah. But I, I, I like the way you put that very much. Uh, my question is maybe s- somewhat similar to uh, just the conversation we just had. Is um, My question was, um, could you just expound a little bit more on the differences between a, a republic and a democracy and how that's reflected uh, for good and for worse in today's institutional church as well as in the early church? Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe what we should say is a pure democracy because obviously in America we have a democratic republic. Um, the, the founders... If you read the founders like the Federalist Papers or, or some of the other documents surrounding the, the Constitutional Convention, they were worried about tyranny. That was their primary worry. They just revolted, succeeded in a revolt against George III in England, fought a war to become independent, and they wanted to make sure that the, that the new American system did not fall back into the old types of, of tyranny. And one of the ways that that would happen is if there weren't structures that prevented power from being abused, which is why we have three branches of governments, we have checks and balances, and all those sorts of things. Going back to Aristotle, Aristotle says democracy is the worst form of government. And what he means by that is not popular input into the government. What he means is that 
when the way that a place is governed is subject to sort of the whim of popular passions, and we see this a lot now accelerated because of social media, obviously. I was talking about that earlier. Once that begins to happen, what, what you have is sort of this instability. And what is the way that the government seeks to stabilize? Well, they promise everything to everybody. Once you begin to go down that path, uh, you open yourself up to, to eventually at some point a strong man is going to come along and impose order again. This is what happened again and again um, historically. So our founders knew that they were, they, they were navigating between two dangerous extremes, tyranny and then just wild popular passions. And in fact, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion that took place right after the, the, um, uh, the American Revolution, a lot of the founders began to think, holy cow, you know, wh wh what have we let loose here? We're going to have this, these popular disorders. Same sorts of things happened right after the Reformation in Germany when people have sort of been set free from the, the traditional bonds that they had with, um, with their, uh, uh, their rulers. You have to be very cautious when you, when you cede power, I think, to an earthly group of human beings. There, there's a famous passage in um, Federalist 51. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels governed men, no precautions would need to be taken, is basically the way it, it goes, goes from there. This is a, a, an insight right out of St. Augustine, that all human beings are fallen. So you, you don't, except at the, the most extreme need, give full power to one human being, because that one human being is going to be a fallible human being. Okay? And so you need to set up uh, not just moral exhortation, not just um, theories of how a prince ought to behave. You need to have actual institutions. I think the same debate is now going on inside the church itself because the church has changed since it became independent of, you know, the, the papal states existed down until 1870, something like that. I mean, the, the, the pope was a, a, prince, a, 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 a terrestrial ruler as well as the head of the church. And now that the church is just a purely spiritual entity, except for those 130 acres of, of the Leonine city, um, we have to think about how does the church govern itself. And, and you know, one of the things I think that is going to come out of the abuse crisis is, is a very careful parsing out of, yes, the, the Holy Father is the successor of Peter. Um, he is the ultimate authority in matters of faith and morals. But we're going to have to find some other ways for the, the governance of the rest of the church. And I think that will come. It's, it has, you know, it has in the past. That's it. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you all again so much for coming out and having lunch with us and coming to hear um, Robert talk. Again, the title of the book is The God That Did Not Fail, How Religion Built and Sustains the West. If you don't already have a copy, you could pick up your copy here at the CAC Bookstore. We're open Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, our next event is going to be an evening event here next Monday with Megan Cox Gordon. She's going to be talking about her new book, The Enchanted Hour, which really dives deep into the beauty and the importance of reading aloud, not only to your children, but just among ourselves. Um, so we really hope you can join us for that event. Please uh, visit our website, cacdc.org, uh, to see and look more into any of our upcoming events. And thank you again so much for coming.